0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Nova Southeastern University's South Florida Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program podcast, also known as the SFGWEP podcast. We're here to educate, encourage, and enhance our knowledge and skills and promote all those amazing health professions experts working with the elderly, including caregivers and interprofessional teams. My name is Naushira Pandya, and I'm Professor and Chair of the Department of Geriatrics at Kiran C. Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine at Nova Southeastern University, as well as Project Director for the South Florida Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program. It's my great pleasure to introduce a friend and colleague, Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda, DO, CMD, She's a senior medical director for United Healthcare Retirees Solutions. She's responsible for clinical strategy, quality improvement, clinical program development, and innovation. She has expertise in health equity, behavioral health solutions, social determinants of health integration into clinical models, diversity, equity, and inclusion, culture change, post-acute and long-term care medical management and system development, and hospice and palliative care models. That's a lot of expertise, Dr. Sanders. (laughs) She works collaboratively with employers and plan sponsor groups nationally to address quality, affordability, and care delivery for their retirees. Hello, Dr. Sanders-Cepeda. It's such a pleasure to welcome you uh, to our podcast. And I wanted to thank you for your time and your expertise. Thank you for having me, Dr. Pandia. So, obvious question. Tell us uh, why diversity, equity, and inclusiveness, DEI, as it goes by, is such an important topic to you. And how has your experience been in teaching and promoting DEI?
1: So... I would start by saying that it is really, for me, DEI is just about how we treat and, and approach our patients and the care and, and medicine as a whole. So when I first started hearing like people say, oh, we have to teach diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think I was, I was maybe two years out of um, medical school and we were talking about healthcare disparities, and that was back in 2005. Fast forward to going into um, um, working actually here with um, Nova Southeastern University. That was the first time I went to a health disparities workshop with uh, Dr. Barbara Rossley, and we were, again, talking about healthcare disparities. How do we promote diversity, equity, and inclusion? But I think, really, for me, the the key was the social justice uprisings in 2020 and the convergence of that with COVID made me realize I need to do more. I need to not only share the stories that I had with my family and understanding what it means to have geographic disparities, but what it means for those racial inequities the experiences that I have had not only in treating patients in their home and in the nursing facilities, but for myself and for our family. And it just became something where I couldn't I couldn't walk away from it. I had to start really thinking about how do we teach this and how do we promote this so that we can do better. I feel like there have been times when it's been challenging. There especially in the last few years with some of the pushback on DEI efforts. I've been in presentations where you're openly being mocked. Fortunately, most of them were online, virtual, (laughs) because we were still in the pandemic. But for the most part, my experience has been very positive. It is a true reward because I I always go into every talk, every time, like with this one prayer that I could just reach one person, Mm -hmm. One mind, one heart. If that happens, then that talk was successful.
0: You start some change. Yes. I really share some of your experiences. And as you know, I've been following some of your talks closely. I've been privileged to attend some of these sessions. And I think I see like more nodding heads and a little bit more emotionality around uh, what you've presented.
1: I appreciate that because you're really exposing yourself (laughs) when you go up and Talk about some of the challenges that we have in medicine. I think that it is one of those things that is not just in front of the friendly faces at AMDA. Sometimes you're out in in front of a state. I was in Kentucky at a health collaborative telling them about food insecurity and about their racial makeup in the state and how we need to do more. And it was well-received, but there were always individuals who are saying things like, why are we talking about this? Why are we still promoting this? Yeah.
0: So I know the period of COVID really highlighted some of these disparities and inequities. And I, you've mentioned in your work that minorities, American Indians, Alaskans, uh, multiracial individuals and black adults, had far more chronic conditions than Caucasian patients. And also we all know that during COVID, that highlighted a lot of problems in the nursing home setting. And it also highlighted the disparities where the outbreaks were more severe, outcomes were poorer in facilities that had a larger proportion of Black and Hispanic patients. So could you speak to... Where we can go from here, why is it important for post long-term care clinicians and institutions to continue to maintain a focus on DEI rather than lip service or have a designated officer? And I'm a little bit cynical about that approach.
1: Yeah, that it really does need to be a, a broader strategy. It needs mm-hmm. to be integrated into everything that we yeah. do, and that is from the policymakers level, to the health plans and the institutions. Everyone needs to be thinking, am I delivering equity? So what we were seeing with COVID especially, were in that that first, I would say, the pandemic was declared in March. By April, we started seeing the disparities, the intense disparities. And I remember being worried that we were gonna stop efforts (laughs) because of those disparities, Mm -hmm. because they've always existed. That is something that we've always seen. I've told the story of being in the middle of what I call nowhere, Georgia, and having to ride in the car with my great grandparents two hours outside of our town to go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. And that's still that way. We still see that where there are even less doctors in that area. So
0: So access to health care access is the most or any important healthcare. thing.
1: Yes. So when we think about the communities who are greatly impacted, who may have what we see as more chronic conditions, the thing that always comes to my mind is how are we approaching these communities? Do they feel that they're in a trusted relationship with the medical community around them? I will tell you when we were talking about vaccinations, I had corporate leaders calling me saying, should I get a vaccine? Is it safe? You remember what happened (laughs) in Alabama. You remember what happened here. And we've seen studies over and over again where there were times when certain minority groups or groups of color were targeted to be in those studies. And that has left a lot of distrust in our communities. It becomes imperative, in my opinion, for us to really recognize this, to understand this because these are the people we're taking care of. Do you think, though, the effect of that
0: distrust, which happened you know, over a generation ago, has that lessened our younger people in minority communities more open to, let's say, medical evidence, recommendations by national organizations, and so forth?
1: I don't think it's lessened. Um, I think uh, Tuskegee and, and some of the, the studies that happen in the greater New York area... All of those things, we may not remember them. In Broward County, where I reside, there is a street called Trunk Boulevard. There used to be a hospital that served the majority of the black community. It was a major thing to to go to this hospital. And when that shut down, because of the loopholes around the Civil Rights uh, Movement Act, the county was able to say, well, you only serve black people, so you're discriminating against others. When that wasn't the case, they now have to go to the county hospital. That left a lot of people disturbed and feeling like they did not have access. And that time period, the hospitals were still segregated, where you were not on the floor with the Caucasian people. You might be in a different wing of the hospital. And I remember my mother, she told me the story where she told her physician she was about to, I think... It wasn't giving birth to me, it was giving birth to my, my younger sister. And she said, we had to pay a little bit more to get a better room.
0: I remember having trained in England, you know, at the National Health Service, we had open wards, and even a peer or a lord could be next to a dustman, and their beds could be side to side. There was really no differentiation. And to me, that was just the normal way in training. But I saw a different uh, perspective when I came to the United States.
1: Yeah, that is the most troubling part of it. And I don't know how we fix all of it except doing it and being consistent and continuing to, to speak the message that we need to make sure that we are delivering equity and that we're not discriminating. So this is the big question because as you know with the
0: Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program, our focus is to educate health profession students, practitioners, uh, frontline staff in providing equitable care for older adults. And yet, you know, race and ethnicity are often used as a proxy for some kind of inherently increased biological risk or proneness to certain diseases. So how can we train or retrain health profession students? Because that's where it starts from. Mm -hmm. And even practitioners uh, to think and practice in a different way so that we're not stereotyping patients and, you know, not being aware of our biases.
1: Yeah, I think that the first thing that needs to start is we need to recognize that race and ethnicity are social constructs. They are not biological constructs. When we talk to anthropologists and sociologists, and people who've been promoting that concept for years, like decades, since the 80s, you could go back and read the literature, 99.9% of the DNA we share. is the same. Yeah, most things are secondary to how your ancestors migrated, where they went, so that I probably have more in common with other people who were born in the area of Georgia and Florida, that I would with anyone in Africa. Indeed. And yeah. we see that as something where I wrote about a story where as a resident, you know, using, I believe it was JNC-7, I'm making decisions about what medication I'm going to start this black woman yeah. on, not respecting the fact that she is not from, not of African-American descent, that she was of Nigeria descent. She comes back in and tells us, This medication, I don't want to take it. I get really bad headaches. I think it's making me dizzy. And I'm telling my attending, and he said, well, we're going to keep her on it because of JSC-7. I had to go back and reread it, present to him because I needed to know the best medications for African-Americans. Turns out that her sodium was very low. The one thing he did allow me to do was run blood work. And her (laughs) sodium was very low, which I called her about, but I never saw her again.
0: Isn't that a shame? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Because that leads to loss of trust. Exactly. Yeah. If we're not listening to our patients when they come and tell us something because we are so busy saying, okay, you have to fit it to this box, yeah. then we are not doing our job. And that's why it's so important that we take away all of those constructs and think about the heritage that that person may have Think about the community that they're currently living in. What barriers to care do they have? Do they have access to healthy food? Because if I have someone with high blood pressure and everything is fast food in their neighborhood, yes, the most likely yeah. their sodium is going to always be up. They're going to be ingesting food that is unhealthy, and we're going to have a high blood pressure problem.
0: Right. And some of the other factors you've talked about, these social constructs have been like safety, environment. You've even talked about zip codes, right? Yes. Can determine how your health care ends up, what your health system is. And then, of course, issues like coverage access, and also, you know, respectful, culturally competent care. I think respect is very important. You can
1: overcome a lot if there's respect. I agree with you. I once asked the patient why she and her husband dressed up so much when they Uh, came to my office. (laughs) We've talked about that. Yes, and they were (laughs) in Sunday Best Clothing, and Mm. they said, well, we find that when we look nice, we get treated better. And that became part of what they did every time they went to a doctor.
0: You know, interestingly, I sometimes do that myself. Even in this day and age, I'm a physician. I'm generally known in the community, but I always have a feeling I I need to dress up a little bit to make sure people don't uh, kind of talk
1: down to me or don't take what I'm saying seriously. I do the same. I I like to dress anyway, so it makes it easy. I (laughs) (laughs) I love all the jewelry and everything. (laughs) It is difficult when I think I was pregnant with my son and, I had an issue at a hospital where I had privileges at. I needed Mm. to be hospitalized. And in that moment, you're a patient, and no one is listening to you. I was like, wait, what's going on? (laughs) Maybe I didn't wear, like, the right outfit, you know? (laughs) (laughs) The wrong color, maybe.
0: (laughs) This is fascinating because, you know, we're still carrying some of these concerns with us. Even after our long careers in medicine, we're still carrying some of these concerns. Um, I was interested in uh, some of your work, you've talked about intersectionality, long word,
1: can you go into that a bit more? So intersectionality is when we look at how all of these things come together, how they overlap, and what we're thinking of, you know, as far as our race, and even our where we live at our education level, how everything overlaps. And when we think about the conversations we need to have, it really isn't just, oh, I want to talk about racism or I want to talk about ageism. It's how, how are these things coming together? What is the experience? Because that's where we find our patients and ourselves in the middle of all of these intersecting loops.
0: To me, in a simpler way, I look at it as I think I need to know the patient's story better. Uh, Not just their long list of medical diagnoses and what they're on and what their allergies are. You know, the routine, like clinical visit. I feel like if I don't know their story, Mm -hmm. where they're coming from, what did they do for work, who's at home, you know, why do they come alone? You know, if I don't know their story, I really don't know how to treat them, respect them, or how to pitch my discussions with them.
1: Yeah, it's really about understanding the lived experience that every person mm. is having. I did a, a will of power privilege, which is just a, a great exercise to do where you're drawing in a coloring, like, yes, I may have the oh. college education and post-grad education, but I may also be neurodivergent, or I may also mm-hmm. be black, or I may also be what someone would consider overweight. You know. Putting all of that in and seeing where you plot out, and you realize, okay, I may be experiencing the world a little bit different than the next person. There may be situations where I go into a room and people are already passing judgment. So is this a tool that you've used to understand yourself or how
0: you're perceived? I'm not it's, familiar it's, with
1: Yeah, it. it's a tool that I've used to not only understand what I started really promoting and speaking about diversity, equity, inclusion, I wanted to understand it all. Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand power and privilege from the perspective of a Black woman who is a physician, a mother, a business owner, all of those things, and versus maybe even the way we are approaching post-acute long-term care because of the patients who show up in our building. So it is a will where you can just color in, and I can make sure I have that available to you as a resource but it's really a good exercise for us to do and one of the That's things available. that we did in one of our workshops through the dei committee for our post-acute long-term care society and the we were able to do a color brave workshop where we had people do this and we talked about it it unpacked it you know we showed them the wills that we did and It was a diverse group of women doing this workshop and we showed them all the different perspectives that we had and it told a different story for each of us so this is the story i'm telling but it tells something to you right it helps you understand okay Mm -hmm. this is maybe the advantages that i have what am i going to do with that because i don't want to stay silent and i want to learn how to advocate for things to be better how close am I to the center of that will? And what can I do with that? And that's the perspective that it taught me. You know, there are some things that I have, there are avenues that I have, there are opportunities that I have that others don't. So then I need to advocate and be a voice for those who may not be close to the center of that power.
0: That's very fascinating. That would be a great resource if you can make that available to us. What is your vision of belonging? Where do we end up in a better world? How do we end up in a better
1: world? So I think that when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, the one part that we don't talk enough about is where we're trying to go. And Mm -hmm. we're trying, in my opinion, to get to a state of belonging where we're all part of this community, where we're all seen, all heard. Our differences are not disrespected, but respected. And honored, And we realize that those differences bring a different element to the story. And we want to hear those differences. We yeah. want to understand. I feel like until we get to that point, that we're going to still hear about the ageism and the ableism and the racism and all of the isms because we're not moving the conversation along. So what I think about belonging is really this belonging is where we're trying to go we're trying to be connected. And that's what the one thing that I see that I feel that we need every time I'm in a room, whether it's a room full of medical clinicians or a room full of corporate board uh, people, like we need to get to a state of belonging where everyone feels that they have a voice and that they are seen.
0: Are we making it too complicated with Is DEI initiatives and making it too structural and process-oriented, is this something we're missing here? I think that
1: sometimes it is kind of complicated for people because they don't understand how I fit into this. Mm, And I think that the most important thing to understand is that we all have a diverse voice. Not one of us are the same. We all desire to be respected and to have equity, and we all want to be included. So that is a one common factor. No matter where you are in the world, people want that. People desire that. Yes. Uh, I think of it as the problem as being that no one understands that I own that. I want to be heard. That's diversity. You, you don't want to be like everybody else Everyone's story is their story. So how do we remove all those barriers and break down all those conversations and all the things that the tribalism that we have so that we understand that DEI is not just for black people or for Latino people, it's all of us. There was a study that I read recently about United States comparing it to other countries, seeing, okay, how do we deliver care across our countries? In the United States, for all the investment that we do in healthcare was one of the countries with the worst geographical disparities.
0: It's amazing. It
1: shouldn't it be that different for someone who, say, lives in one county to get healthcare versus another county. It shouldn't be that different, difficult from state to state. And I've seen studies too,
0: regional differences mm-hmm. on how women with heart disease are treated, whether people get asthma dialysis or invasive procedures or mortality out uh, exactly. I mean, uh prenatal or perinatal outcomes are
1: i shouldn't have to have such discrepancies from the population i'm treating say in georgia versus alabama versus louisiana versus mississippi yes. and it is no. night and day when you see that what are we doing how do we address that because that's not only impacting the black community in those states, it's also impacting the white community and the Indian community and the indigenous community and the Latino community. We had a situation recently where we were like, oh, we want individuals in this area we're, we're noticing that we don't have a lot of Latinos wow. going back to the doctor. And why is that? How do we solve for that? Yeah. And I said, well, let us see the material. And one of my colleagues, she looked at it and she's like, will you translate this It says nothing It's trans is it's gibberish
0: you mean the material material that
1: you were sending to the patient if they requested to have a spanish version i know from my time in practice i would have patients come to me with information that they may have received from other doctors offices um, information that they may have received from their insurance plan to say can you tell me what this means we already know we have health literacy challenges Everything's moving to digital, so now we have digital literacy challenges, and that's a super um, social determinant of health, where, you know, I'm telling people to now engage their doctor with telehealth and they don't have internet access. And patient portals
0: and so forth.
1: Yeah, so what do we do about that? If we're not solving the first problem, how do we get to solving that problem?
0: Yes, I've had many patients bring a stack of papers from an emergency room or hospital and say, here, look at it, that's what they gave me. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, it, it's, it takes it, a long time explaining to them and even figuring out what they went through and uh, I, what the course of action is going to be.
1: I felt like as part of the visit was mostly me interpreting what the paperwork said. I had one patient whose the, the facility I inherited her from the another medical director and the facility's like oh she needs hospice but nobody wants to have hospice they the daughter doesn't want it but the daughter didn't understand the pamphlets that were being given to her yeah. she didn't understand what that meant for her mother's health and when i explained this she was like oh okay thank you for talking to me thank you for mm-hmm. talking to me and not talking down to me talking with me yeah. isn't that something just
0: occurred to me though race aside I think older adults also experience the, those disparities in many ways. Uh, although we're a geriatrics program, I have a feeling and I think I've seen enough evidence that a lot of older people aren't treated respectfully and you know in a competent manner. They're often looked down on as if they're not as sharp or they can't hear as well or things are oversimplified or they're not involved in the decision-making. So... I think ageism by itself is also a form of discrimination,
1: and and I agree. I think that um, when we look at the policies that we have um, in place for a lot of our facilities and across the post acute long term care facility um, continuum, my question is always, is this biased because of the population that we serve? The majority of the people being older than 65, you know, we think about, you see a commercial, you hear, watch a TV, even while we're driving. Oh, that's an old person. There is a lot of discrimination, a lot of bias placed against the older community. Should they be working? Should they not be working? Those are individuals, right? From my cultural experience of knowing so many great grandparents and great aunts and uncles, we would, as a child, they would be honored. And I don't see that happening anymore. You know, there's not that honoring of the person for their wisdom and their knowledge. It's more of a situation where we are saying, okay, they're less than, they're a problem, and they're a burden. And you hear it when you're talking to the patients and residents we're serving. Always, I feel like a burden. I don't want to be a burden. I know I'm weighing my... Daughter down, my son down. And when I see and teach younger students and residents, they're often
0: surprised at the wonderful discussions we have with older patients because they're not as connected with their grandparents or great grandparents.
1: Yeah, I think we do need to address that because there is a intersection with age and ageism and structural racism and gender bias and all of these things that we see all of that collides together and we are putting ourselves in a situation where we are biasing the way we practice medicine for that older community think about how many studies do not include the older yes, adult or they're excluded yeah they're completely excluded You're, we're excluding 75 and older yet this is now the recommendation that I'm supposed to treat this person with these medications. Or we're
0: excluding people with cognitive impairment. Well, how do we treat uh, all our frail patients, uh, many of whom in our post-acute settings have cognitive impairment?
1: Yeah, I was looking and I, it can get even, when you start going down and you're thinking about the, the person who brought mine up in your nursing home, Where's the literature on intellectual disabilities? Where's Mm -hmm. the literature that shows me how ageism and ableism intersect? Where are all these Mm -hmm. things that I need to know? Everything is based off of a a younger population, but I'm now doing my practice and teaching based off of that study. And it worries me because we know that we have to treat the 90-year-old different than (laughs) the 65-year-old. Yes, yes. So, uh, Dr. Sanders, this has been a real pleasure. Any final words of wisdom? I would say that we must all become advocates in promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is everybody's story. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today and seeing you again.
0: And thanks for joining us and sharing your expertise with our audience. Please stay tuned for upcoming topics from our renowned subject matter experts.